Our reading is from Mark, chapter verse 15, verses 21 to 39, and this is on page 1022 of the Church Bibles. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the soul. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those standing near heard this. They said, Listen, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a star, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I explained earlier, we're going to be focusing in our reflections on the 22nd Psalm, Psalm 22. And what we're going to do is we're going to say each section together. So you can see the first section there on the screen. And then afterwards, if you want to find it in your Bibles on page 554, um, then um, you can use that as we um, reflect together. Right, if we can say off the screen that the, the, there may just be one or two slight variations between the older and newer New International Version. So if, you, if we can say the words on the screen, if you can see them, um, then um, that will be helpful. Psalm 22, you'll notice the first line there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You heard just now in that reading from Mark's, uh, Mark's Gospel. You heard Jesus taking those words on his lips. And that is the way into this psalm. So let's read these first five verses together. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Thank you. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles under the seats or in the to page 554, and we're going to reflect in just short sections on each of these readings. So those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're words that we may well associate with Jesus as he died on the cross, one of the particular things that he's recorded as having said at that point. And today we want to sit at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross, to gaze on the Lord Jesus as we think of what it meant for him to die, to learn from him, and then to see what it means to live for him. But in order to understand what it meant for him to take those words on his lips, we need to go back in time to um, hundreds of years before Jesus lived and died, to the time of David, who wrote this psalm. Uh, It says that you'll see in the Bibles at the top, it's got a little inscription, a psalm of David, among other things. Um, We don't quite know exactly what that means, whether this is something that David is writing about his own personal experience. From what we know of David's life, there's obviously a lot about David's life in the Old Testament. Um, it's hard to map the exact experience that he seems to describe in Psalm 22 onto the events that we know about in his life. Um, and there are other Psalms where that's easier, and he says it's a David Psalm, and you can see exactly how that matches up with things that happened. Um, We don't quite know. It's possible that he wrote this without fully knowing the situation that it would apply to. He wrote it prophetically. And as as we know and as we believe, the whole Bible is breathed out by God the Holy Spirit through its human authors. And so we can trust that David wrote these words knowing that one day they will be fulfilled, even if he couldn't see exactly how they were for him. But either way, as we study these words, as we look at what they say to us, we can see the agony of the situation that he describes. We've just begun to hear about that. We're going to hear a lot more in the rest of the psalm. The agony that he describes, a sense of abandonment, forsaken. And this abandonment that he describes has been made worse in several ways. So, do you notice he says, it's not 
my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? You know, please, can we sort of stop this and, and do something different? It's not, why are you forsaking me? It's, why have you forsaken me? It's happened. I have been forsaken. I'm now in a state of forsakenness. It, it has that sort of final sense to it. I am forsaken. And do you notice, too, how much David in these verses says that he's speaking? He's crying out. The words that come from him, these are words from him, but we hear them. And do you notice what we hear? Uh, Why are you so far from my cries of anguish? I cry out by day, he says. And yet, do you notice? God does not answer. God is silent. David is crying out, God is silent. But God is the one who speaks. What's going on? God is the one who spoke the universe into existence, and yet now he is silent. So do you see how this contributes to the sense of abandonment and forsakenness that David feels as he speaks these words? And it gives us a window then into what it meant for Jesus to take these words on his lips. And then he compares it, you see, with past experience. He says, look, it hasn't always been like this. In you, you're you're the one that Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you, delivered them. They cried out to you and they were saved. They trusted in you and were not put to shame. What's going on? I'm forsaken. I'm abandoned. And that sense as well of the, the poignancy of saying, my God, my God, you're my God. This is, not, this is not some sort of impersonal relationship. No, you're my God, and yet you've forsaken me. It's not meant to be like this. Do you see? Now maybe as we listen to this, we can identify with that feeling just a little bit. In, in, in one way or another. Or we can think of others that we know and love who can identify with that, that feeling just a little bit. Maybe a sort of sense, you know, in the past God seems close. In the past, in the past there was some crisis and my response was to pray. And wonderfully God answered those prayers and it, it was a wonderful thing and I felt so close to him. And yet now, I'm going through another crisis or whatever it is, and I cry out. And there is no answer. What is going on? Maybe we can identify just a little bit with that sense here. And so as we come back to the cross then, as we come back to Jesus, and we see him take these words on his lips. What is, what is he saying? Jesus, remember the sinless one. The one who had done no wrong. The one who, if anyone could say, has God as his father. My God. If anyone can use those words, it's him. The son. 
eternally in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the creation of the world in eternal relationship. And yet he comes as man to earth and finds himself saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't deserve it. Look at what he, that sense of abandonment then that he is taking on himself. We know from everything Jesus said and did that he entered into this willingly. This is not something he does against his will. This is something that Father, Son, together in the Holy Spirit have together plans to do. This is their common will. He enters this willingly and yet he doesn't deserve it. Why is he doing it? Well, he's doing it in order to identify with human beings like us who have turned our backs on the God who made us, who in one sense should not be surprised if God is far from us because of our sin. That should not be a surprise to us. And yet, with Jesus it is, and he willingly takes our place to say those words instead of us. He doesn't deserve it. He stands in our place. And so as we begin this, we'll think more about the implications of that. But as we begin this, we just stand and we we marvel at Jesus being willing to stand in our place in that way. To identify us then also in our pain, our loneliness, our suffering whatever form it takes. So here are a few questions to reflect on just for a a moment or two together. Do do you resonate in any way with Jesus' experience of abandonment? Do you know others experiencing that? Thank God that Jesus knows what it means to suffer. Moment or two of quiet to reflect on that together. And so we now come to verses 6 to 11 of Psalm 22. We continue, we read together. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. The trouble is near and there is no one to help. Well, you may again recognise echoes or rather foretastes of what Jesus would experience in that description of suffering there. 
But we move in these verses from that sense of abandonment, separation from God, to focus on the effect that that has on the people and the relationship between the ones suffering in the centre and the people around. And the sense of compounded suffering that comes from that alienation, not just from God, but even from the people around him. He says, I am a worm. And the point of that is, a worm is both insignificant and destructive. Something to be kind of got rid of as, as quickly as possible. And so, we see that foretaste. All who see me, mock me. The mocking of others further compounds the suffering of the sufferer. Because the point is, isn't it, how pathetic to, to be someone who prays because, you know, well, you know, is, is that working? How pathetic to be someone who prays and then not be answered. To be someone who, who cries out and then nothing happens. How pathetic. And that's the sense that these mockers have. That's the kind of thing that they're saying as they look on. A little bit like, you know, the guy who gets an email one day saying, one of those you know, emails that comes that says, you, you, you're, you're the closest living relative of a man who's died leaving millions of pounds. And all you have to do is you have to pay a hundred pounds to this uh, PayPal account or whatever um, for the legal fees and then we'll sort out and, and hey presto, you're, you're going to be a millionaire. And this person falls for it and he doesn't. And then he waits. And nothing comes. And he keeps emailing and he keeps saying, I did what you asked. I sent the money for the legal fees. What's happening? Why no response? And finally, he tells his friends, and what do his friends do? They laugh at him. It's obviously a scam, you idiot. And that feeling, do you imagine that feeling of being scammed? Of thinking, I've fallen for something, I'm such an idiot, and now everyone is laughing. David is experiencing. Because he's saying, I'm praying, and I'm crying out, and nothing's happening, and now everyone's mocking me because of how foolish I am to have believed that there would be a God who would answer, Lord, rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Ha, 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 he's not going to do that, is he? You see? And this feeling of being mocked and, the, and the, 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 that sense of shame that he feels is then heightened by the contrast. Each time in, these, in, in verses 1 to 5 we had what David was doing and then what was true of God. Again we've got what is happening to David and then he speaks of God, verses 9 to 11. And he, <clears throat> do you see how he describes God? He, he describes him in the most intimate terms as if God had kind of been the midwife at his birth. Do you see this? The, the one who'd brought him out of the womb, that, that, that had made me, me trust in you, even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast on you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. In other, in other words, what's he saying? He's saying, Lord, we have 
the most intimate of relationships. From a human perspective, it doesn't get more intimate in, in one sense. God had been to him like that. And yet that early protective care that he'd experienced has given way to abandonment. Ultimate intimacy has given way to ultimate rejection. And so again, as Jesus takes these words on his lips, and as he experiences what we see described here, we're moved to consider this may sometimes be our experience, but it shouldn't have been his. Not only did he really enjoy that perfect intimacy with God, he perfectly loved others. He even loved his enemies as they mocked him. Not only did he do that, he willingly entered into this experience himself, suffering the mocking and the jeering and the shame. What love is that? Let's reflect again. Maybe you can identify with experiences of prayer where you feel, I, I, I've prayed and that, that hasn't been answered or not in the way that I have been hoping for. How does that make you feel? See that Jesus experienced that and much more as he suffered the judgment we deserve. And praise him. Let's have a moment of quiet to do that. So verses 12 to 21, we read together. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Well, in those verses now, we focus in more explicitly on the physical suffering. The suffering of David, but the suffering that we then see in Jesus. Again, it's so striking to see the details, the similarities. Um, we don't quite know what this would have meant in David's life, but 
those parallels with Jesus are hard to miss. He speaks of his bones being out of joint. You know, the way that crucifixion worked, the way it inflicted suffering on the one dying. It forced them to be in a position where to, for every breath they would have to take, their, their arms being stretched out would restrict their breathing so that they had to pull themselves up for every breath. And so through the day you get more and more tired. Your bones, your joints are pulled in different directions. His bones are out of joints. He thirsts. We think of, again, Jesus on the cross and thirsty, and they give him a sponge soaked in wine vinegar. They pierce my hands and my feet, we read. People stare and they gloat. They divide my clothes and they cast lots. All of these so hard to miss, the connections with what Jesus experienced. And then verse uh, 19, he speaks of, his, uh, he says to God, do not be far from me. He, he, he is crying out there like a, like a fallen soldier crying out to his comrade, come near, help me. It's about to finish. Rescue me. This was Jesus' experience. And as we began, he, he, he cried out as the psalm began, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why was Jesus pierced? Why were his hands and feet pierced in this way? Isaiah picks up on this in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. We read these words, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. <coughs> but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. And so Isaiah is bringing to mind there the, the great exchange at the heart of Christian faith. That as we are united to Jesus in faith, he receives what is true of us. He is pierced for our transgressions, our sin. He takes the punishment on himself. And we receive what is true of him, his perfect, righteous life. We're clothed in that. But we might ask as we read this, and particularly as we, as we focus on here on, on the suffering and what that meant and the extraordinary lengths to which Jesus had to go to suffer. We, we, we might ask, is that really necessary? Is it necessary to suffer to this extent? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why is all this needed? 
Well, consider this situation for a moment. Um, suppose you steal my Ferrari. Now, I don't have a Ferrari, just to make that clear. But suppose I did, and you steal it. And you go off, and you crash it. That's a very serious thing. It's caused tens of thousands of pounds worth of damage. And you're not insured. Well, there's two choices that I have at that point. I can, I can make you pay. I can say, whatever it takes, you're going to have to pay for this. And you're going to have to work until it's paid off. I can make you pay. Or I can forgive you. But forgiving you has a cost, doesn't it? Do you see? Forgiving you in that context has a, a cost because there's been a great damage caused. And if I chose to forgive you, if I wanted to forgive you, I'd be choosing to bear that cost myself. Do you see? And you might be really grateful for that. But the cost has been paid. And so as we meditate on Jesus' sufferings, as we see them spelt out in this way hundreds of years before he lived, as we meditate on the cost of what it took, that's what we're seeing. You see, we're being shown the cost of forgiveness and we're, we're being reminded he did this for us willingly. He paid that cost. This is what we deserve. And yet he took that for us. So that when we trust in him, we know we are forgiven. And that is open to any of us this Good Friday to trust in Jesus. To know that when we do that, we are joined to him. He receives what is ours, our sin, it goes on him. We receive what is his, his perfect life. And so we stand before God then unashamed. Because... Jesus suffered in the way that we read of here. So let's reflect again. Are there sins that you need to confess that took Jesus to the cross? Well, bring them to God and confess them. And know that at the cross, Jesus willingly suffered the judgment you deserve to bring you into relationship with God so that when we trust him, when we say, I put my trust in Jesus. We know our sins are forgiven. The price has been paid. They're forgotten. And we enjoy perfect intimacy with God. Let's reflect now for a moment on the quiet. Our final section, Psalm 22. Together, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of the praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. 
may your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. then just like that the tone changes it's so abrupt that some have suggested that oh surely this psalm must actually be two poems clumsily stitched together because the tone is so different how do we switch suddenly from suffering and pain and abandonment to to joy and praise and hope well it's because we have a God of resurrection who can bring about this kind of change. It turns out that the way out of the abyss, the way out of the deepest suffering, is to go deeper until you find the light. See, the way through death is not to shrink, but to realise there is one who has gone through it come out on the other side and so what we see here in this in this final section is the difference that Christian hope makes even on Good Friday even while we suffer What David is experiencing here is not the present removal of his sufferings. He is still the one who, who begins by crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is, these are the words of hope, sure and certain hope, that even though God feels distant now, he will act. So today there may be tears, but there will be a day for praise. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you, he says. In one sense, he's not doing that today, but because he knows that that day will come, it changes today. And that is praise that will overflow to invite people from all nations to praise him. In one sense, this is what we call evangelism, isn't it? Of bringing the good news about Jesus to the world around us. Of saying to people, have you heard? Have you heard how great God is? Have you heard the difference that God makes in the midst of suffering in a fallen world? Have you, have you heard the difference that it makes to know that there is one who has suffered and died and risen from the dead? who's gone through suffering and come out the other side to end it. Have you heard? That is evangelism. Come and join us. Come and praise this God who is like that, is what we're saying to people. 
And it's what David is saying here. But notice also that the support and the hope that David speaks of is a hope that he imagines among God's people. Do you see this? He's not alone in these final verses as he speaks of this. He's in the assembly. That's where he's thinking of himself. That's where he's going to be declaring God's praise. In the assembly. And so for us now today, it's in the assembly now that we can declare God's praises, confident of that day to come when sin and suffering are gone for good. Because Jesus has already died and risen. And so our hope today in the face of suffering is something that David, when he wrote this, could only see in shadow and in part. But today, even when we go through experiences that feel like this, we can know there is one who has suffered and died and put our trust in him. Because when we suffer, when we feel far from God, that is when we need one another most of all. And that is when we need to hear from one another of the one who suffered and died and defeated death and rose. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this. He talks about why it's different when we hear others speak of Jesus and what he did compared to when we just try and tell ourselves what Jesus did. Have you ever noticed this? This is what he said. I find this really helpful. He says, he talks about the one who is suffering. And it's old-fashioned male language, but it applies equally to men and women. He says, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And that is why we need each other, do you see? Because there's that sense in which, you know, when we're just sitting by ourselves and and we're feeling like we're suffering and we're feeling like, oh, you know, where is God? And it all feels so weak. We need to hear from one another, just as David speaks of here. In the assembly, let's tell each other. The assembly is his word for Christians or God's people gathering together. As Christians do when they meet in our services and at other times as well. Christ in our own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of our brother or sister. So that even in the midst of suffering, hear the hope that we have from one another. And it is hope that in the end flows from what Jesus did by enduring that deepest darkness. Suffering more than we can possibly imagine, but doing that for us. So that as he concludes we can proclaim then to generations to come he has done it. Let's have a moment of quiet as we reflect again. Pray for those you know who feel far from God through suffering or sin. How can you bring the hope of the gospel to them in what you say and do? Pray for God's help to do that. Let's have a moment of quiet.
let's pause and read just those final words from John's Gospel at the end of his account of Jesus' crucifixion. Again, just notice what happens here that we've heard foretold in Psalm 22. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.